This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. This podcast is intended for a mature audience. Listener discretion is advised. On a warm summer evening in June 2003, police in the North English town of Altrincham in Greater Manchester received a panicked phone call. A 16-year-old boy named Mark managed to tell the emergency operator that his best friend had just been stabbed. He said they were in an alleyway behind a row of shops in a residential area known as Goose Green. When first responders arrived, they found a 14-year-old named John lying on the ground clinging to life. He had been stabbed twice and was covered in blood. A bloodied knife was visible nearby. Mark was hysterical. In between the heavy crying, he told police that a stranger had come out of nowhere and attacked John, completely unprovoked. John was rushed to the hospital, where he underwent emergency surgery. The damage was severe and he had to have his gallbladder removed. Even then, his condition remained critical. Unsure if he would pull through, John was transferred to the intensive care unit. In the meantime, Mark was still working with authorities to help find the attacker. He described the assailant as wearing black clothing and thought he was somewhere in his late teens or early 20s. Officials began gathering all available CCTV footage from around the area and made a public appeal for any information related to the case. But no one came forward, and there were no other witnesses. Mark did his best, but there just wasn't much more he could tell them. There was no one he knew that would wish John any harm. Although he was uninjured physically, the attack, understandably, had left Mark badly shaken. While reviewing the many hours of CCTV footage, investigators found that the alleyway where John was attacked only had one entrance. A nearby camera was fixed on the spot and caught some interesting footage that night. It was just over a week after the incident that police finally saw the video from that camera, which clearly showed the lead-up to the stabbing. The video showed that around 25 minutes before Mark called the emergency number, both he and John walked into the alley. That part was not much of a surprise. What was curious to police is that no one followed them. The camera footage proved that Mark lied to investigators. So authorities quickly changed his status from being their prime witness to becoming their prime suspect. When police spoke to him again, their approach was quite different. They knew Mark was hiding information from them and hoped he would save everyone the time and energy by simply confessing. 
had it just been an argument that got way out of hand. Knowing the camera footage now placed him at the scene, Mark did exactly what investigators hoped he would, and admitted to stabbing John. A month later, in July 2003, he was charged with attempted murder. Those who knew Mark were absolutely shocked. He had never been in trouble with the police before. He was a responsible teenager who enjoyed school and had a part-time job at a restaurant. It made no sense that he was now being charged with such a violent crime. But if police thought this was going to be a straightforward, open-and-shut case, they were very wrong. They were about to be confronted with a story so bizarre they could hardly believe it was real. My name is Eric Crosby. Welcome to True. As Mark awaited trial, investigators and those who knew him were questioning why or how he could possibly act out so violently. He and John were friends, and as far as anyone knew, there had never been any disagreements between them. While it's not necessary to prove motive to secure a conviction in court, it does go a long way to help the prosecution strengthen their case. On the other hand, if there were mitigating circumstances, it was in Mark's best interest for him to tell detectives. If he was somehow provoked or was protecting himself in the lead-up to the stabbing, it might diminish his responsibility in the attack. But he provided no further information. When he finally told investigators that he wanted to come clean, no one could have suspected what came next. To everyone's complete amazement, the 16-year-old revealed that he had been working for the British Secret Service. The teenage MI6 agent went on to explain that he'd been recruited under highly covert circumstances. Mark said that he had never met or spoke to the person who recruited him, but that he did have a name. Janet Dobinson. According to Mark, Janet contacted him through an internet chat room. Back in the early 2000s, online chat rooms, discussion forums, and message boards dominated the internet. Before major social media platforms existed, anyone could connect with anyone for real-time conversation about whatever topic they were interested in. Chat rooms were easily accessible and provided a great deal of anonymity. Mark told authorities that when he stabbed John, he was following official orders from Janet. It was hard for police not to roll their eyes at such an outlandish story. After all, over the years, they had heard some pretty good stories from underage offenders, but this one certainly had to take top prize for originality. With all the time Mark had to come up with a solid story, this is what he invented? The story, not surprisingly, was discarded as a work of pure fiction. It was only when forensic investigators were examining Mark's computer that his ridiculous alibi became not so ridiculous after all. In fact, the more they searched his computer, the more it appeared that what he had told them was actually true, 
at least on the surface. Over the next two months, authorities tried to unravel the pieces of the bizarre cyber puzzle. At the same time, they wanted to know more about Mark. He was an only child in a loving and supportive family in the upper-middle-class suburb of Stockport. He got passing grades at school, was an avid Manchester City fan, and was not someone to find himself in trouble, especially with the law. Like many young people his age, he was fascinated by the internet and used it to connect with other young people. In early 2003, he came across a chat room called Manchester Teens and created an account. For those with webcams, the option of face-to-face -face conversations was there, but many preferred posting behind the safety of their usernames. It wasn't long before Mark was spending a good deal of his free time logged into the chat room. His schoolwork suffered a bit, but he had made some new online friends, in particular, a 16-year-old local teen named Rachel West. Two days after meeting Mark online, Rachel had introduced him to her stepbrother, John, who also used the chat room. Like Mark, John was not a troublemaker. He performed well at school, although, like most teens, he was not a huge fan of authority. He was on the receiving end of bullying at school, which caused him depression and anxiety. John lived with his mother, who had several relationships during John's childhood, some good, some not so much. When it came to his mother's most recent live-in boyfriend, John wasn't a big fan. While still a young child, he discovered the man he thought was his biological father was not a blood relative. The revelation was upsetting for John. As he grew up, he preferred his own company to being outgoing and social. Chat rooms provided the perfect outlet for John to escape from his loneliness in the real world. He could connect with other young people who had no idea who he was or what his problems were. Like Mark, John was soon spending as much time as he could in chat rooms, often in excess of 10 hours a day. Rachel, Mark, and John continued chatting for the next three months or so. Mark and John used their webcams to chat about movies, video games, football, and of course, girls. Given the unregulated and largely uncensored nature of many chat rooms at the time, one of the popular topics for teens to discuss online was, not surprisingly, sex. Exchanging photos and engaging in private online chats was popular. Given Mark wasn't very confident with girls and had never had a girlfriend, his chats with Rachel gave him a huge ego boost. For Mark, it was a whole new world of social interaction. To him, it was exciting and meaningful. He and John had become extremely close, and things with Rachel were getting serious as well. The pair could not chat face-to-face -face because Rachel didn't have a webcam, but that didn't bother Mark. For him, it was just great to hang out, chatting and getting to know her. On several occasions, the pair tried to meet in person, but over and over again, one of them would back out due to nervousness. As the months passed, Mark's infatuation with Rachel deepened. As with all chat rooms, new users came and went. 
In April 2003, a new user named Kevin McGregor started posting. He was interesting. Kevin was not shy about the fact that he had a foot fetish. He described himself as a stalker. He said he posted in pink font because he was gay. He was a character, but no one seemed to pay much attention, including Mark. That was until he received a terrifying message from Kevin. When he read it, his stomach sank. Afford Anything talks about how to avoid common pitfalls, how to refine your mental models, and how to think about how to think. Paula, while certainly you can mess up on a million dollars a year, it is far less likely than it is on $30,000 a year. Right. I would meet wonderful people that were struggling with a budget that was super tight. It was 100%. You need to make more money. Make smarter choices and build a better life. Afford Anything, wherever you listen. Kevin said that he had stalked Rachel before abducting her and was planning on raping and killing her. Mark was left paralyzed with fear. Just as he was wondering what he could possibly do to save Rachel, he received another message. This time, Kevin said he would free her on two conditions. The first was that Mark had to show him his feet. Second, he wanted Mark to masturbate for him on the webcam. Feeling that he had no choice, Mark went through with it. Keeping his promise, Kevin told Mark that he let Rachel go. Mark was worried sick about Rachel's ordeal and tried to set up a meeting with her to talk about what happened. Not only was she a no-show, but her online activity became almost non-existent. When she eventually stopped posting in the chat room altogether, Mark was devastated. His attempts to contact her privately also went unanswered. He thought she may have been so traumatized by what happened that she needed a break. Still, he was desperate to make contact. That, however, was going to have to wait. When Mark logged into the chat room, he was horrified to learn from other users that Kevin had abducted Rachel for the second time. When they told him that Kevin had actually followed through on his previous threat to kill her, Mark was in shock. He decided not to contact the police, despite very much believing what happened to Rachel was real. Instead, Mark contacted John, who told him how concerned he was. Mark was grateful for the support and the two continued spending the majority of their time chatting online. Whoever Kevin McGregor was, he seemed to have fallen off the radar. Mark soon had another brief online flirtation with a new chatroom user named Lindsay East. But as he felt himself getting attached the same way he had with Rachel, Lindsay too disappeared, leaving Mark wondering what had gone wrong. A month after the Kevin and Rachel incident, Mark received a message from a new user. Her name was Janet Dobinson, and she was 42 years old. Mark found it weird that a woman old enough to be his mother 
who was married with two kids and said she worked as a realtor, was posting in a teen chat room. She told him that despite her age, she was still very sexy, and given the subject matter of a lot of the online chat he was used to, Mark didn't think this was entirely unusual. It was what Janet told Mark next, however, that really got his attention. Janet explained that her day job was simply a cover, and that she was really a spy for the British Secret Service. She told him that she was very senior within the organization in terms of national security and top-secret operations. She went on to clarify that she was, in fact, the third most powerful woman in the country. Janet made an offer to Mark to come work for her and her team at MI6. She said that he was chosen specifically for recruitment, which he found both extremely flattering and hard to refuse. In return, aside from earning the kind of money most teenagers could only dream about, Janet would also provide Mark with sexual services. Mark could not believe the opportunity being presented to him, and he did not hesitate to accept. After taking the Oath of Secrecy via the chat room, and receiving his new code name, 47695, he was in. Janet told Mark that he would be contacted shortly about traveling to London for his orientation. While there, he would meet key figures, including the Prime Minister and the National Defense Secretary. Before the orientation could be arranged, though, Janet had a task she required Mark to complete as part of the recruitment process. He would be acting as a bodyguard for someone named James Bell. Janet went on to explain that not only was James coincidentally in the same town as Mark, but that he went by the alias John. Even more, it was the same John as Mark's close friend. Mark was told the assignment paid £300,000, and all he had to do was pull John out of school the next day and stay with him to make sure he was protected. Janet neglected to mention who was trying to hurt his friend. That's because details of the operation were on a need-to-know basis. So MI6's youngest recruit did what he was told and met up with John the following day. It was the first time the two had met in person, and they got along well. This continued for the next couple of months. When they were not hanging out, they chatted online, all the while staying in touch with Janet. She liked to remind Mark that protecting John had implications for national security, and that his role was vital. On one occasion, she disclosed that John had been diagnosed with a terminal brain tumor. Janet explained that John was only one of two people, the other being the Queen, who had security clearance to access a top-secret safe. The safe, Mark was told, was at the bottom of the Atlantic Ocean. She went on to say that while his hometown of Altrincham seemed like an unusual base for covert operations, the suburb was actually home to many agents. In mid-May, Janet had another task for Mark. It was something only he could fulfill, given his close, professional relationship with John. She said the instructions came directly from the Prime Minister himself. Mark would be required to create the impression that John was gay, by performing oral sex on him. Mark initially hesitated at the idea, 
But when Janet told him her job was on the line over it, he felt he didn't have a choice. It was around this time that John's mother was growing concerned about the amount of time her son was spending online. When she searched his online activity one day, her fears were confirmed. She noticed right away that John was spending the majority of his time chatting with Mark. So she did what any reasonable parent would do and contacted Mark's mother. However, despite both their mother's concerns, neither teen cut back on the amount of time they spent online. On June 28, 2003, Janet reached out to Mark with another assignment. This time, it was a far more serious mission. Janet said that according to John's emails, he was planning a school shooting as a result of the constant bullying. In order to stop the tragedy before it happened, Mark would have to do something he most certainly would not like. He would have to kill John. In return, he would be paid 18 million pounds, become a fully qualified British intelligence agent, and he would get to have sex with Janet. She provided him with all the details of the plan, including the location of the killing. Should the plan need to be called off for any reason, Mark was provided an abort code. The code was simple enough, 6969. Janet reassured Mark that she would not be far away and would be watching as the events unfolded. The plan was that she would step in as soon as the assassination was carried out. She would be disguised as a police officer and would discreetly usher Mark away from the scene. At 11 a.m. the following day, John and Mark met at Altrincham Station, where they caught the train to a nearby shopping center. Following orders, Mark bought a kitchen knife, telling John it was for his mom. The boys hung out together for a few more hours before returning to Altrincham. Up until then, Mark had not been able to go through with the attack, but around 7 p.m., he had a change of heart. He lured John into the alley, where they hung out for another 25 minutes, goofing around. Mark realized it was now or never. He pulled out the knife and plunged it into John's abdomen. Overcome with guilt, fear, and grief, Mark told his wounded friend he loved him. At 7.52 p.m., Mark called the emergency helpline. As first responders arrived, Mark was sure Janet was among them. But if she was, she didn't make herself known. Maybe it wasn't safe for her to extract Mark just yet. Even well after his confession to authorities, Mark fully believed that Janet would use her security credentials to resolve the situation. As the investigation continued, police were confident that the person calling themselves Janet Dobinson was an online predator grooming teen boys. During the forensic examination of Mark's computer, they found most of the chat records with Janet had been deleted. This was, no doubt, an attempt to maintain confidentiality regarding his missions. However, not all of them had been removed. Analysts were able to confirm that not only was Janet a fabricated character, but so were Rachel and Kevin. 
they determined that whoever was behind all three fake profiles was most likely the same person. That's because while all the personas had entirely different conversational styles, they consistently made the same, unique spelling error. Janet, Rachel, and Kevin always misspelled the word maybe the exact same way. All three spelled it M-Y-B-Y-E. It was far more than a coincidence, and more importantly, it was a huge lead. It was clear that Mark had indeed been coerced into killing John. Now, the police just had to find out who it was. Three months after the stabbing, investigators had poured through hundreds of hours of chat logs and roughly 58,000 lines of text messages. They were looking for any other chatroom users who misspelled maybe the same way as Rachel, Kevin, and Janet. Their detective work paid off. Police were now confident they knew who the perpetrator was. But even for them, it was hard to believe. It seemed every time Janet Dobinson had been online, so had John. And when Janet was offline, so was John. It was too much of a coincidence to ignore. Faced with a mountain of compelling evidence, the 14-year-old knew he could no longer continue the bizarre charade. John eventually admitted to creating all three online identities. That was not all. When his computer was examined, investigators found evidence of almost 200 other fake personas. When Mark discovered the truth, he was devastated. In May 2004, John and Mark both pleaded guilty in court. By that time, Mark had already been in custody for eight months. The charge against John was unique, to say the least. He was facing a lengthy sentence for inciting his own murder. As far as British law was concerned, this was a completely unprecedented case. During the trial, John told the court he was surprised that Mark agreed to carrying out Janet's bizarre and exploitative requests. Of course, the biggest question still remained. Who orchestrates such an elaborate plan with the hope that it leads to their own murder? It's reasonable to assume that John wanted to take his own life and was too scared, so having someone else do it was a logical alternative. However, it was clear to the court that John was instead completely infatuated with Mark and was unable to remove himself from the intricate fantasy world he had created. According to John, the inspiration behind the Janet character came from his obsession with fictional spies like James Bond. Mark was sentenced to two years of supervised probation. John received three years of probation, but did not serve any prison time. The pair were also prohibited from joining any further discussion forums or chat rooms, and could never meet again. Today, Mark and John would be around 35 and 33 years old, respectively. Thankfully for both teens at the time, their anonymity was protected by the presiding judge, who ordered that their identities would never be publicly released.
True is a production of Imperative Entertainment. This episode of True was researched and written by Gemma Harris. The executive producer is Jason Hoke of Imperative Entertainment. The cover art and design were created by Jenna Sullivan. True was created and is produced by me. Have any comments or questions? Email us at podcasts at imperativeentertainment.com. As always, a huge thanks for listening and for your amazing reviews and ratings. I'll be back next week with another episode. Pockets portfolio of podcasts are worthy of your investment. We're having a real conversation as real real estate investors. New episodes available every day. It's important to buy where it makes money and not necessarily where you want to travel to. Bigger Pockets on the market, rookie real estate or money podcast. The purpose of flipping is to create more cash so then you can reinvest into other types of properties. The Bigger Pockets podcast on YouTube or wherever you listen.